Hello, I'm Pat O'Mahony and welcome to the fifth and final of our five Media Curious off-message podcasts in association with JOLT, an EU Horizon 2020 project coordinated by the Fujo Institute at Dublin City University, investigating how best to harness digital and data technology for modern news gathering and journalism. My guest for this final episode of our series of five special Jolt off-message podcasts is Sarah Kreta, whose research looks at the use of digital media by communities living in exile trying to advance transitional justice. Sarah, welcome to our little Jolt chat. You are currently, am I right, back in Dublin, but you've been away. Yeah, you are right. I'm here back in Dublin, sunny Dublin, (laughs) (laughs) enjoying this lovely weather. All right, okay, okay, okay. So it's grey and dull. All right, don't rub it in. I got used, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) You're Italian, right? Right. I was born in Italy, but I I would say I've been traveling uh, a little bit everywhere in the past uh, 15 Mm. years. So, yeah, I pick things from one country to another and I, I shape my identity. Ah, okay, very good. I like that approach. And where are you just back from or where were you recently? I was recently in Sudan. Mm. Uh, this is part uh, of, of my research, but also of my previous work uh, and, you know, previous field uh, that I had in Sudan in 2019 during the revolution. So I just went back. Uh, to interview journalists and activists that were taking part in the revolution that shaped the political uh, situation in Sudan. And part of that was as part of your JOLT research? Yeah, exactly. I've Mm. been uh, working uh, for the past four years uh, in a research project together with the Dublin City University. Tell me about your project. What, What is it about? So I'm working on a project, on a research project that investigates how community living in exile use uh, digital media to advance uh, transitional justice. Um, particularly, I'm focusing on social media platform. Um, I'm looking at uh, the way that community that are living in exile, so that they mm. were forced to leave their country. Um, how this community, how these people, how these activists have incorporated digital technologies and the implication on their lives. So you're more interested in how, for the, for a large part of your research, how non-journalists are using tools that journalists use as part of their everyday work. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, we can say that digital communication and mainly, you know, digital technologies uh, can enable new practices and mechanisms. Mm. Uh, that shapes political engagement, civic engagement, activism, political participation of citizens, right, mm. um, in general. So definitely we see that journalists are integrating these digital technologies and digital communication in their daily work. Uh, but the same has been happening, you know, with nature of Internet and access to Internet. Uh, people that had nothing to do with journalism uh, started to use uh, digital communication technology and uh, this has also shaped their engagement with politics with justice with uh, accountability and with the media too i take it 
Exactly, definitely. And also with the way that they can produce content, right? For audiences mm, and, mm. Uh, and yeah. What got you interested in this topic in, in the first place? So I'm, I'm a journalist. Like I've been working as a journalist and I always cover conflict and human rights violation. Um, I wanted to investigate how digital communication technologies enable these new practices and mechanisms that shape transitional justice politics and processes. I'm interested in the issue of justice and accountability, um, especially because I really think that it's important uh, to understand how transitional justice you know, can, can change societies, but also uh, what, what happened to a society after a conflict and uh, you know, when there are huge human rights violations, how the issue of you know, identification or uh, archiving this uh, human rights violation mm. is going on, you know. Explain the phrase transitional justice. So transitional justice is structured around three key pillars. Um, mainly is accountability, acknowledgement and reparation. So there is a need to identify and persecute the perpetrators of war crime through judicial mechanism that could be tribunals or court. There is a need to seek, to establish, to acknowledge the truth. This is the most important. And there is a need to compensate victims who have experienced these gross human rights abuses. That's why, you know, transitional justice, um, what we could say, it's a kind of transition from conflict and violence to a more peaceful future. Uh, we could talk, for example, about truth commission, you know, that they can achieve public recognition and gain collectively shared knowledge about the past. And this is especially important if we want to avoid that these crimes will be perpetrated again in the future. Right. So, so, for example, I don't know, in the case of the Syrian conflict, right, which began in 2011, um, there are more hours of user-generated digital content about the, the conflict than there have been hours in the conflict itself. So it's, it's one of the most documented uh, conflict in history. I never thought of it like that because I do remember it was the war of social media. Everyone had a camera on their phone. Everyone had access to a social media platform to post uh, what they shot on it. And footage just came out in droves from, from Syria. Exactly. So... Um Documentation is key if we want to bring perpetrators to trial, right? Mm. And if we want accountability to be achieved one day. But also truth commission, you know, are important to provide a form of accountability where perpetrators are held also morally accountable for their action. And this is very important, you know, for society that have been experienced this violence and this conflict. It's important because we need to identify what are the factors that contribute to shape and advance transitional justice. And also, you know, when we work on um, online activism, especially in the context of uh, communities that are living in exile, it's also interesting to see what are the risks and opportunity for this community. The implication, you know, that mm. this can have on their life. Why concentrate on communities living in exile? So I'm very interested in community living in exile because they are um, countries like where the people that live outside of the country 
For example, let's take the case of Sudan. There are between 1.2 and 1.7 million citizens that are currently living abroad. These are mainly living in neighboring African country and in the Gulf region, as well as in Europe, right? And this is out of a total population of? Around 43 million people, according to the last UN data. Okay. So these communities, these citizens that are outside of Sudan, are able to build a space where they are creating a political dynamic that they cannot produce at home because they are in an authoritarian regime, they are in an authoritarian mm -hmm. country where there is no possibility for political activism to take place, where opposition leaders are in jail, where journalists are arrested. So they had to flee their country and build outside of Sudan, so outside of their country, this space, this political space where their activism takes shape. Where it's safe where they feel safer. But also um, what is interesting is to assess the risk and the opportunity that those practices can, can, inclu can include, right? Mm -hmm. For example, what is their role of platforms today and content moderation? Are the platform ready to preserve this content? Yes, of course, because archiving is central, as you said already, to the whole notion of transitional justice. Exactly. So again, I think um, we should ask the question, can platform be trusted as archives? Mm. Because this content is particularly vulnerable to disappear from the platform for a number of reasons, especially on if we consider the platform commercial interest and term of services. Or we can think about the government pressure, you know, to mm -hmm. delete certain content or even the user ability to remove their own content or to flag other content for removal, right? Right, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's why in the case of Sudan, for example, um, the Sudanese have been created a digital archive that is called Sudanese Archive, where they have been um, gathering, collecting, preserve and process this human rights related content with also another important element that is to verify and investigate this content, right? Because we can have a high witness, uh, you know, content, uh, but then we need to verify and to investigate. That is a whole project in itself, the whole area of verification, because there's so much information out there that is user generated. Exactly. That what is true and what isn't is in itself, uh, well, it's the essence of modern journalism in, in a lot of ways. Definitely. And mm -hmm. then, you know, again, if we, if we look at the transitional justice, this is extremely important, right? Mm -hmm. To have this content um, documented, verified, and also investigated. Because again, um, when a criminal persecutor or, you know, a fact-finding mission process into human rights violation um, is working to, you know, collect evidences, collect material, talking with individuals, you know, mm -hmm. police, judiciary, military, military intelligence, activists, then, you know, this process can lead to reform of laws and institutions can lead to reparation for human rights violation. So I think it's very important, you know, to, to being able to understand from activists, from media practitioner, mm -hmm. 
how we can protect their fundamental rights in light of digital practices. Hmm. When you started out, did you say four years ago? Yeah, I arrived in Dublin in 2018. That's when I started um, this uh, project. That's only three years ago. Yeah, but I've already been involved in Uh, research on how contemporary activist Mm. groups use social media, you know, to facilitate civic engagement or how their collective actions are combined in politics. So when you started out, what did you hope to find? What was your aim at the very beginning? Well, when I started, I was particularly interested in situation where, for example, in Sudan. Um, so for, for people who are not really familiar with Sudan, maybe we could, uh, we could say that internet freedom in Sudan suffer as the country experience, you know, harsh response from the government especially because for 30 years there was a dictator, mm. uh, the, one of the long-lasting president in, in place, Omar al-Bashir. So when I started, Bashir was still in power. And, you know, I remember I, I was following uh, the, the Sudanese uprising and the way that youth in Sudan and also outside of Sudan were using social media platform. Uh, to mobilize and to document the protest, right? Mm. Um, and I knew that uh, I would have a fertile ground to explore. So I, I took, you know, um, this case as a very interesting uh, example to understand how um, a dictator um, is, is trying to control social media and internet and how basically youth and others are resisting. Had you any personal connection with Sudan, or was it just that it was such an interesting story, you, you it grabbed your attention? Yeah, I'd never been to Sudan before. I went there the first time in 2019, but it was such an interesting uh, political environment that I thought, like, yeah, it's it's worth to follow what is going mm. on there. But of course, right during the so-called Arab Spring. I was following what was going on on the other side of the Mediterranean in Tunisia, Egypt, uh, uh, Morocco, you know. So, yeah, of course, I already had, you know, uh, a number of examples of uh, youth-led uprising. Libya as well. Libya as well, exactly. So I I was always involved in this kind of, you know, how platforms were used to mobilize Mm. or to document protests. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely from a social sociological point of view, it's very interesting, right? This expressive dimension of social movement. But mm. then, um, but then, of course, here there is the the implication of justice and accountability that I think is very important as well. I'm just thinking of your timeline. You would have got quite a bit of your research done before COVID hit. Yeah, exactly. I was lucky that I was able to to visit Sudan before COVID in 2019. So that was really, really important, you know, because again, for this kind of research, um, it's not possible to conduct this kind of work uh, remotely, you know. Hmm. Um, yeah. But you're, but you're just back from Sudan. So I'm intrigued. How did you get there this time? Because the pandemic is still ongoing. 
Yeah, exactly. It's very important uh, when, when you know, in the middle of a world pandemic, also to consider health issues and, uh, you know, to, to be able to adapt uh, mm. into, you know, a different uh, context and the dynamics. I think that uh, from my side, you know, I have a huge experience because I've been working in difficult environments. Uh, I'm a well-trained in protecting my health as well, mm-hmm. because I've been working with uh, doctors without borders in a number of uh, epidemics in the past. So, you know, I know how to follow all the necessary guidelines in public health advices uh, to be, you know, to keep myself informed and also, you know, to keep myself protected. But what I think is interesting here is that I had to do interviews about specific and sensitive topics, you know, that are not suited to online communication, especially because some of these activists have legitimate concern about surveillance. Of course. So, for example, uh, it's very important to spend time with uh, my research participant to give them time, you know, to decide if they want to participate, if they want to share, uh, give them also a clear explanation of what is my research about and why I'm doing this work, right? Uh, to ensure that they, if they want to be anonymous, I, I protect their, their identity, mm. right? So these are very important guarantees that, I have to ensure to, to, to these activists, right? And that's why, you know, the ethical part of my research is very important. But I would say also this kind of work has a very important component of ethnographic approach. Ethnographic approach require in-person observation and communication to build trust, you know, to, to mm-hmm. understand the context, to, for example, some of these activists, they, they are speaking in another language, right? So I need to capture all the kind of nonverbal, uh, yeah. um, and and you know this is very important, and this will be completely lost in online conversation. And trust is vital in something like this. I mean, you're dealing with people whose lives could be in danger. Exactly, trust is is uh, very important, and you know sometimes we forget that you know to build trust with people uh, that have been uh, living in in fear, right? for mm. maybe half of their lives they were under you know arrest or they were not able to speak freely right mm-hmm. so it's really really important to be able to to spend time and to build a kind of um understanding of each other especially uh, when we talk about you know barrier that exists between any researcher right that want to go and engage with people that are sometimes unable to share what they are doing because their actions are considered illegal. Because maybe they organize in structure, in opposition, that are considered terrorist organization in their own countries, right? Of course. Um, because sometimes also this authoritarian regime are without borders and they can reach activists in London or in Paris, even if they are not able to silence these activists because they are living in, in France, right? They mm-hmm. are not living in in a country where they can exert like power, but they can still, you know, create a sort of uh, authoritarianism, transnational authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. So they could use spy agents or other ways, right? 
And, and they could also threaten the families of people who are abroad, who are now, Definitely. the families are still at home in Definitely. Sudan. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Did you, did you, as part of your research, did you also, I mean, you went to Sudan, uh, obviously, to speak to people on the ground there. But as you say, you're, you're more interested in, you know, the communities living in exile. So how did you speak to them? Yeah, so I, I decided also to go to Sudan because a lot of these activists that they were living in exile when Omar al-Bashir was in power decided to go back. Ah. So that was really interesting for me. Today, the Ministry of Information, the Undersecretary of the Ministry of Information was someone that was participating in the protest in Paris when I started this research. Right. And today he's sitting at the Ministry of Information Mm. I could give you many other examples of uh, Sudanese journalists that they were hidden in Cairo, in Egypt, and they decided to go back to Sudan and open a newspaper. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to have this, you know, practices uh, and also to describe what was going on. But definitely, I also met with uh, people that are in Europe that are living in Europe and they are not able to go back. For example, those people from Eritrea, right? So part of my research is also looking at Eritrea. Uh, Eritrea is a militarized authoritarian state that an, has not held the national election since independence from Ethiopia in 1993. And the only independent media, Eritrean independent media, is Radio Arena, and is based in France. Uh, okay. So did you go to France or were you able to conduct that research online? Exactly. I was able to go to France before the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spent time with the journalist at Radio Arena. And I'm also planning to go back again um, to spend um, more time with them. How did you get access to Sudan now in the middle of a pandemic? And when you came back, I presume you had quarantine. Yeah, exactly. So uh, when I went to Sudan, I was able to travel to Sudan because, of course, you know, there are, again, COVID measures that okay. you would uh, consider when you travel and that you have to respect. But that's not something unusual for me that I've been covering, you know, other health pandemic before this mm. one, right? Uh, for example, in 2017, I was at the border between Chad and uh, Sudan, and there was uh, an hepatitis E huge um, problem uh, at the time. Uh, also in Congo, uh, I I was able to report on the Ebola crisis, you know, and other health major mm. issues. So I mean, for me, as I had this experience as a journalist, um, the pandemic was really something that um, really didn't shake my psychology so much mm. because i was already used to this major you sure know, even uh, though you knew you were going somewhere that would have very low vaccination rates yeah, you were confident definitely. that you could take the right precautions exactly so, so i think this is uh this is very important because again i was trained into you know this kind of work um when I was reporting on Ebola, for example, Ebola is really contagious uh, and, uh, and, and is brutal, uh, you know. Um, so I, I, think, um, I think, yeah, it's something really psychological that you need to prepare yourself. Uh, 
and also definitely you need to train yourself when you are working in hostile environments and when you came back um how was isolation yeah uh, i was not really um quarantined because i went back to italy and um, in italy is as a different approach to to COVID. but of course like you would uh, spend uh, five days and then you will get tested and ah, okay you get an ev- test and yeah everything goes well Um, So I will not say that, you know, the the COVID has impacted my work psychologically or, you know, that I felt like, um, yeah, but definitely COVID has affected my ability to move. And for someone like me that I've been living in more than 15 different countries in the past six to seven years, you know, the difficulties around travel and, you know, the, the, the border were closed. Um, so, yeah, anyway, it was difficult, you know, to mentally to accept this state mm, of, mm. Uh, of play. But at the same time, you know, um, it shaped, I think, the perception of us as European that we are used to this free travel mm. uh, world, a borderless world, right? Because suddenly all the borders were back. And, uh, you know, we couldn't uh, go to Italy or to even to Germany, right? That's just one hour flight. But, you know, for many people, that's the reality. For many people, they they can't move. They are stuck somewhere and they have no ability to go anywhere else. Mm. And this, unfortunately, is is the reality. A lot of the people I've been interviewing or I spoke with, uh, they face this all their life, right? They were unable to move. They had to, you know, run away from Sudan or Eritrea in, you know, across the desert or the Mediterranean Sea because they couldn't travel by plane or they couldn't, you know, move freely. So definitely for us that we are used to this free travel, Mm -hmm. it was a shock. Suddenly, right, we were not even able to run or to cycle anymore. We need to provide you know, justifiable, justifiable reason. And, but yeah, we need, we should keep in mind that, yeah, hundreds of refugees around the world have no homes, no healthcare. They are locked up with no reason. Mm. And, you know, you know, definitely the situation of unknown and fear that we were all passing through. Unfortunately, this is the daily reality of people that are detained or are living in a perpetual state of powerless or they are unable to play their future as they want, or they, you know, face officials that decide Mm. on their fate, you know? Or Mm. if you look at, you know, countries like uh, India, you know, Uh, when there was lockdown, you had hundreds of thousands of migrant workers that they were left homeless, and they had to walk miles to find a shelter, right? That's right. So when everybody's saying you need to stay at home because your home is safe, but in the middle of a war, for example, um, I, I, I spoke with people that were in Libya and they didn't want to stay at home because their home could be bombed at any time. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world. So where are you now on the project? What stage are you at? So uh, right now, my research is like uh, smoothly... Um, let's say, arriving to a point where I'm concluding my interviews. Mm -hmm. So um, I start, you know, to engage with a number of uh, activists uh, to conduct uh, interviews. And as I said, 
I couldn't do this work remotely, so now I have another round of interviews in Europe. And hopefully uh, I would be able to, you know, start drafting uh, my conclusion by next year. As well as activists, do you talk to academics as well? So I am talk with a number of um, respondents from activists, uh, human rights uh, defender, and also human rights lawyers that mm -hmm. are working in this process of you know documenting human rights violation, but also uh, preparing uh, court cases. Um, I'm also talking uh, with journalists that are living in exile, so as those journalists I was mentioning before of Radio Arena, mm -hmm. uh, but also other journalists that have been creating uh, their own media. Uh, sometimes they are satellite TV channel, others are electronic media. So yeah, a number of different uh, experiences. Um, and, and definitely the, the idea is... Um, to mix, you know, uh, all this um, right-based initiative and uh, create, you know, a new um, analytical framework, so a new concept, you know, a new mm. idea that will go beyond the existing concept that you will find in academia around this. So, for example, transnationalism, advocacy, you know, human rights and mm. and and you know grasp this with the experience and the reality uh, of this ethnographic uh, pluralism right so you know shifting a bit the borders and and bring you know this critical question to how this can intersect you know with the issue of power and the issue of control and the issue of you know nationalism and identity have you done much reading on it is there much to read definitely i mean the scholarship on this has been you know uh definitely i mean so rich um i'm particularly interested in post-colonial studies so i'm trying also to engage with the issue of uh, data colonialism you know uh, for example the idea that uh, information infrastructure is not neutral uh, rather, you know, when we talk about data and data categories, uh, these are inertly political acts. What does it mean, you know? How the information is collected, how is archived, how is categorized, and eventually how is published, you know? These are all political choices and they, you know, they necessitate a, a critical review, you know? Uh, I, I suppose to put it in non-academic speak, uh, history is written by the victor yeah so here we see that for example when we talk about platform control over access to public data um, we can say that this it's kind of reshaping the power of colonial archives right mm. so sometimes there is this ability to keep citizen away from information until his content become the realm of the depoliticized past. So until the moment that this information, it's not anymore political, right? Yes. When we will be able to depoliticize this information, this past, then we can, you know, 
give citizen access to this information. When it's safe to give them access right? from, from your political perspective, yes. Right. So here what I'm talking is about counter-archiving. It's a kind of call to action, you know. Ah. It's a kind of way for citizen to, you know, to reshape this monopoly of data collection, you know. If that's a big look, ask. That's a yeah, very as, big ask. That's why I, I talk about a critical approach, you know, in mm. this kind of research. And, you know, this is also why I decided to, you know, to look at this new form of, you know, data collection, for example. Wow. Okay. Um, it, it's ambitious. What's what's in your head is very very ambitious. <laughs> I I hope so, and I hope ideally, you know, I would like to be able to create impact, you know, yeah. uh, in the work of activists, in the work of media practitioner, in the work of policymaker, you know, especially to protect fundamental rights in the light of digital practices. I do want to come on to the impact that you hope your project has, but before I get there, you're some months away from. Uh, writing it all up and knitting it together but what have you found so far so what i really um thought that was interesting uh, especially in the case of these um, communities eritrean and sudan that are definitely understudied community um was the role of transitional activism as a response to media and internet shutdown during conflict so, for example, in Sudan, there was a major internet shutdown. So there was a huge violation committed by the security apparatus in Sudan on 3 of June. Uh, basically, um, hundreds of people were killed, um, protesters that were peacefully asking for a transition to democracy were killed. And at the same time, on the same day, internet was shut down. Okay. So for more than uh, months, 40 days, people in Sudan had literally no access to internet. So what I'm looking here is ways how during conflicts and, and especially during internet shutdown, what are the opportunities that are arising? So how, for example, journal journalists living outside of Sudan, connecting with people in Sudan, or creating spaces where people could, you know, share information or... Uh, um, and that's why I'm talking about the role of uh, exile community. Mm. Because people outside of Sudan created the channel on Telegram or on Twitter or on, they create Facebook page where they started to share, you know, this mm -hmm. content that was collected by people on the ground that they were not able to share because they didn't have access. So how they were, you know, able to connect with people outside of Sudan, which strategy the Sudanese outside were playing to get in touch with the people inside, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, I found out that they started to distribute um, SIM card from foreign countries ah, okay. so that they could use internet, but on, a, you know, uh, on another provider or that they start to use SMS campaign to uh, organize protests, or that they started to uh, use satellite internet and the people outside of Sudan were, you know, collecting money to, to, to pay for the provider to, to have satellite mm. internet, you know, or just the structural, uh, how the movement restructure 
itself, you know, to be able to have uh, this awareness, spreading awareness, verifying footage, you know, or, you know, share content. Um, because at the same time, when there was this uh, huge uh, shutdown of the internet in Sudan, the military council raided media offices, you know, so they mm-hmm. dispersed the, the, the protester, they, they killed the protester, but they also expelled Al Jazeera, right, from the ground. Right, okay. So, you know, this, uh, you know, elements, we have no journalists, and these are recurrent in many conflicts, right? When there are atrocities and mass violation, we don't want to have journalists on the ground. Because they're witnesses. So again, I think this is very interesting to understand how in in situation of, you know, internet shutdown and, you know, conflict where there are huge violations happening, how transnational activism can play a role as a response, you know? Mm, and can find a way around it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's intriguing. All right, well, let's get to the big question. So, and you've already uh, alluded to it. How do you hope this project will affect uh, not on well who do who do you want it to affect who do you want to read it who would you hope reads it and what do you hope they take from it well first i would like to provide empirical evidences right so again i'm taking two two countries eritrea and sudan that are understudied community and I think it's very important to reflect on this, on the current research, and uh, in particular on the role of transitional activism, and then try to highlight, you know, opportunities and risk in digital space. Uh, but ultimately, I think what is interesting here is that my my contribution is a field build contribution, right? So this means I go to the field, I speak with activists, ah. I speak with people that have been, you know creating um, alternatives, strategies, opportunities, but also that face risk, right? Mm. And uh, I try to build on their knowledge, you know, for example, to ensure that future conflicts that with no doubt will produce large amount of visual content can be collected, verified and catalogued, you know, using a set of methodologies that is trusted by international academic and human rights actors, you know, and audiences from the very first day. So this is very important, you know, for for future to build recommendation for stakeholders, Mm. you know, activists, media practitioners, policymakers, but also platforms, right? How we can ensure that we will protect fundamental rights in the light of digital practices. How has it impacted you? It's fascinating. I mean, uh, I'm able, you know, to spend uh, my time with uh, with people that are making change, you know, that are building history, and and this is uh, fascinating. Uh, but definitely, you know, it's uh, it's it's difficult when you see that um, you know they also are facing a risk. And mm. sometimes that threats or yeah, risking their life, you know, to bring democracy in their in their country, and uh, yeah, and I feel lucky, you know, because I'm you know I'm able to to share this with them. How did you become involved with 
the JOLT project in the first place? Uh, so when I was in, um, I was, again, so I, I, I'm a journalist. I've been working as a journalist. Uh, I've been covering conflict and uh, in my work as a journalist, you know, I always try to to go to the field and to understand how conflict and the human rights violation are and report about, you know, um, but uh, at the same time, I, I spend a lot of my time uh, working with the human rights organization. And um, as again, I was saying, I was uh, in the field with Doctors Without Border and mainly covering, you know, humanitarian crisis mm -hmm. from uh, Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh to, you know, refugee crisis in the central Mediterranean or, you know, in Lake Chad with the climate refugees and then you know suddenly I I kind of felt that this humanitarian sphere is kind of uh, depoliticizing um, the the people that are affected by conflict right because again when you are working on a humanitarian space um, in a conflict your main aim is to be neutral and to deliver impartial humanitarian aid right doesn't matter if it's for the government forces or for the rebels you that's need to be that's certainly the theory right you need to be impartial and neutral mm -hmm. then definitely we can argue you know that even you know the humanitarian action is a political action you know but that's another sure. that's another story uh for me as a journalist that was you know embedded with an humanitarian organization i always had to report on that you know on that how the crisis is impacting the people and how the you know in that case doctor without border was responding to the crisis right so i start to question my position as a journalist but also i start to question how humanitarian organizations are you know keeping this crisis and the, the people that they are you know um, uh, supporting through humanitarian aid in a passive uh mm -hmm. narration right yeah yeah they are passive victims that require the humanitarian aid that someone is providing yeah and i start to question also you know this uh, in, in in a more let's say critical uh, way right why for example uh we cannot consider them as active citizen right that they are you know um, trying you know to build on their communities or you know, working together with this humanitarian organization, you know, to build their camps or to provide waters for their kids or, you know, to create schools or, you know, other form of education, you know, that are maybe mm -hmm. less Western oriented, right? And so also my work has been evolved, right? So you will see that in the in my work in the in the last years uh, on the field for example in congo i've been working with human rights activists that were fighting hiv stigma right so yeah i was still trying to you know balance myself from the humanitarian perspective and the passive victim that require humanitarian assistance and also you know the the more active role played by the communities to build, you know, on. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's when I started to think that would be interesting to dedicate a couple of years on, on this and have the time and the space, you know, to, to, to take a step back 
from the film and to to work on you know a more uh, in deep uh, knowledge around this and that's why I decided I wanted to you know to do research and uh, um, being involved in a more critical uh, you know way in, mm. and this I, I think was I think was really important uh, you know to take a step back and have this um, I would say privilege right to think because when you are in the middle of a crisis, you work from one emergency to another, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So you really don't have the privilege to think. So I think it's really, really interesting and is definitely enriching my work as a journalist. So when will we see the end product of all your work with Jolt? I wish I would say as soon as possible, <laughs> but I, yeah, I still need uh, a few more months and mm -hmm. I hope I would be able to present something by next year, maybe middle of next year. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to it because it's fascinating, as are all the Jolt projects. Sarah Creta, thank you very much. Thank you also for listening and for asking this very interesting question. So thanks again to Sarah Creta for taking me through in this final Jolt of Message podcast her work on how communities in exile are using digital media to try to advance transitional justice. More information on Jolt and the other podcasts in this series can be found at joltetn.eu. You can also find all these and more media-savvy podcasts and blogs and subscribe to future ones at patomahony.ie slash offmessage. We're off message one on both Twitter and Facebook. Until the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off Message, and thank you for listening. <laughs>